We're really glad you're here today. You know, I bet some of you haven't noticed an unbelievable change in our sanctuary. You have to right now look behind you. If you can, look at those railings. All right? And for those who are up top, you finally can see. Even though you look a little bit like you're in jail right now. I'm, I'm sorry about that, but, but you know... What, what, you know, it can't be perfect, I guess, you know. But I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here because we meet together to worship. You know, we just got through singing some songs to our Lord. And, and sometimes those songs just flow from our hearts, don't they? And, and we're so full of who God is and, and what God's doing. But sometimes we come pretty broken. Sometimes pretty beat up. And so we sing songs to a God who restores us, who puts some of those pieces back together again. And you never know when you need that. And you're singing about a God who always has perfect timing. Nobody we know has perfect timing. (laughs) Am I right? Not even one person. But God knows. God is there. And how wonderful. How powerful. What a time to be able to just sit back a little bit. To stand up. To maybe even don't sing at times, but just let those words. And praise an amazing God. We're here and we pray and we sing and And we praise and we open up God's word. We desire deeply to help families, to help individuals, help whoever is around, to be able to know, obey, and enjoy Christ. Enjoy the Son of God. That's what we're doing in our new series, John. This feisty gospel is written by, well, a feisty apostle. And it's written near the end of his life, way after all the other gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he's reflecting on someone that he loved and adored. Someone that was so amazing to him. Someone he got to spend three years with. Now, there's some pretty neat things that happened all over history. But honestly, if if you could have been one of those 12, one of the guys that Jesus actually picked. Now, again, we would be referring to you sometimes as knuckleheads, right? As a little bit slow. But still, I would be there. I'm okay. Sign me up. To watch him, as in just a little earlier, turn some water into wine. And so we get to go through the Gospel of John as we get snapshots of Jesus. The way that John saw Jesus. The way that his message just turned John absolutely around. And we get to go back. And we get 
to experience this. You know, each week we watch Jesus. We learn about Jesus. I guess this week I want to encourage you to join us. To dig in with us. And if you would, you can turn to John chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 13. But we just want to hang out with Jesus a little bit more. And see what he has to teach each one of us. I've asked Steve Doloff to read our scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can follow. If not, you can look up at the screen. Hold on, Steve. I'm sorry, it's not working. Can you come up here? I, I don't know what the problem is. Thank you. I, you know what? You were very clear to yourself. We'll get it soon. Okay. Tell me when, because I can't tell when it's on. You're good. You're good. I'm even. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at the tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered the, this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What, they exclaimed? It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as, well, a group of strugglers with life. Some of us are doing well today, but I'm pretty sure each one of us need to hear from you. We need to understand just a little bit about what you get passionate about and what bothers you. And we need to hear your words of hope for our lives. You know, Father, I, I know that there's a whole lot of other churches in our area that are preaching good news. And that there are congregations who are raising their voices to praise you. And we pray, dear Father, that you would just work in them mightily. 
that your kingdom work would go forward, not only here in Lake County, but all over the area. I pray especially for my friend John Reamer, Father, who is pastor at Grace Point Church in Mundelein. I pray, Father, that you would continue to heal him and encourage him and strengthen him. And I pray, Father, more than anything, that you would give him a sense that you are pleased. We thank you, Father, that we can just come boldly into your presence. We can just talk to you at any time. We're pretty grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in our text, it's a little bit long today, but there are a few things that just kind of jump out to me. First thing I saw is that it was normal for Jesus to celebrate the Passover. Now, some of you may not be too familiar with the Passover, and so I thought I'd give you just a quick lesson on, on what the Passover was. But the Feast of the Passover, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was the first festival that God commanded all the Israelites, all the Jews, all the Hebrews to observe. We find that in Exodus chapter 12. Well, the Jews met and gathered together to celebrate God's mighty power and His faithfulness. Some of you recall the story back when, when the Jews were in slavery that God sent a deliverer. His name was Moses. And Moses, of course, was raised in Pharaoh's court, then went out into the desert, and for about 40 years, God, well, trained him, humbled him, and then sent him back as an unbelievable messenger of God's grace. And he confronted Pharaoh and, and basically shared with Pharaoh that it was time for the Israelites to be let go. Pharaoh wasn't convinced. And, and after a series of all these unbelievable, powerful plagues that showed God's power, he ended with one which has the name the Passover. And the reason it was the Passover is that he had instructed all of God's followers that he is going to send an angel of death. This will be the plague that will allow you guys to leave and head off toward the promised land. And what you're going to need to do is you're going to kill a lamb. You're going to spill the blood. Lots of blood in the Bible. Lots of illustrations. But you're going to drain the blood and you're going to put the blood on your doorposts. And if you do this by faith, when the angel of death comes over, then you will be saved. Well, your household will be saved. Well, in particular, your firstborn will be saved. If I was living back then, that would have been a good thing for me. All right? I wish it would have been. No. Um, but those are things that as you look at this. So all of a sudden, all over Egypt, there were wails and cries. And, and from the Pharaoh all the way down to the lowest, if they didn't have blood, they would die, their firstborn. What agony. And so they finally leave, and as they leave, and, and they finally go to another unbelievable miracle, and that is walking through the Red Sea. And so what really God was trying to say is, I don't want you ever to forget how much I love you, how faithful you are, and actually how important blood is. 
all the way through. And so every year, I want you to come and I want you to celebrate this time. All right? I, I want you to make your way to Jerusalem. And so no matter where, and again, you might not be, you know, um, Israel savvy. You may not understand where all, you know, um, these places are. But Jerusalem was where the temple was. And, and realistically, all Jewish God-fearing males of age were to take a trip to Jerusalem to visit the temple, to pay a temple tax, to actually sacrifice an animal and shed some blood. Now, that's so foreign to some of us, I, I get it, but, but that was something really, really important. And we're going to come back to this in just a second, because as you read, Jesus made quite a scene one day when he met there. So Jesus, he makes the trip. What does that mean? What's the big deal? I'll tell you what. Again, this is early in his ministry. You would think again, I'm starting a new ministry. I'm gathering disciples. Maybe I don't need to do all the things I used to do for the first 30 years of my life. Maybe this synagogue trip, or excuse me, this temple trip just isn't that important. But you know what you find out? The Son of God submitted to his Father's wishes in every area. And this was part of not only tradition, but part of the Scriptures. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't even talk to his dad and say, you know what, I only have three short years here to serve. Maybe I can skip this, and, and maybe we don't need to go there. But Jesus embraced the culture. We talked about that last week, going to a wedding, something very normal in the very beginning stages of his ministry. So Jesus was doing life together with people. But the next thing that stuck out to me is that Jesus was passionate. In some of your versions, if you read this, he had zeal for God's house. You see, the temple was God's house. It was a sacred place of meeting for God's people. Now, granted, was God big enough <laughs> in the Old Testament to be able to fill all the earth? Well, absolutely. But there was something about the temple. We would call it the Shekinah glory that, that dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And it was just well known that, yes, God is big enough and God is everywhere, but God is really right here. You know, at first, there was a tabernacle. But that was soon replaced by a temple. It was Solomon's temple. It was an amazing temple. That was the temple that David set up for Solomon so that he could build this. And it was a, a gorgeous, unbelievable structure, all giving God glory. Well, y'all, or many of you know Israel's history, they were not always obedient. A lot of times they weren't obedient. And eventually God um, spanked them. The temple was destroyed. 
And there have been different stages all through history where the Jews have tried to rebuild the temple and tried to, to get to this exact spot. Well, during Jesus' time, let's fast forward, the temple that was around was more or less called Herod's Temple. All right? We're going to look at some pictures of it in just a little bit. Not actual, at least some drawings. But, but one of the things that, that you need to know is that all the way through the Older Testament, as God was revealing himself to all of the children of Israel, there were a few things that just jumped out about the temple and the reason that it was special for the Jews. First of all, the temple was called the house of prayer for all peoples. It's actually a little odd term because you would think, no, that temple is just really for those God-believing Jews. But that was never God's purpose. The Jews were there to represent God, to be able to mirror God to all the nations. In Isaiah chapter 56, starting at verse 7, Isaiah writes this, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him, and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest. In other words, who are obedient. And who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called the house of prayer for all nations. Now this is going to make some sense in a second. The also, another thing that you need to know as far as the temple is that its focus was atonement. It was reconciliation between a group of people who were rebellious and the almighty and holy and clean God. So the very focus of the Taber, excuse me, of the temple was the Holy of Holies. Now, in the first temple, there was something called the Ark of the Covenant, made very, very famous by some movies, all right? But really what happened is this Ark of the Covenant, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the Scripture tells us it's called the Mercy Seat. And this is where the high priest once a year during the time of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which we talked about actually last Sunday just a little bit. He would go into this Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on behalf of himself, on behalf of the nation. And it would be this ritual to be able to say, okay, God, we are a fallen, diseased, dirty people. We need forgiveness. And so in the very, very center of this complex was this atonement focus. All right? Now, the other thing that was, that was really important is, and, and I've mentioned this, is that the temple is where God dwelt. I'm going to go back to Exodus 25, 22. And in the very early stages when God was giving some of these instructions, he said this, I will meet with you there in this Holy of Holies and talk with you above the atonement cover or the mercy seat between the gold cherubim that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for my people Israel. 
Now, a house of prayer for all peoples, focusing on atonement, this place of, of reconciling, reconciling people and reminding people that I am present. These are important things. Now, we see in the story that Jesus was highly offended when he came into the temple. Now, I'm going to try to show you some pictures. Just know this, that really we do not understand completely what this temple complex looked like during Jesus' um, visit. We don't. But if you can give me the first slide there, this is a basic, and I know the print is small, but what you're going to be able to see is, is in a very um, uh, simple picture, the part that Jesus came in and was so offended is that huge part. It's called the court of the Gentiles. And we're going to explain what that means. All right? The actual place where much of the worship happened, especially for the Jews, happened in that other square. Can you go to the next slide for me? This is probably what it looked like during Jesus' time. And again, it's, the print is way too small, but what you will see in the very center section... Um, is not the section that Jesus walked into, just so you know. The big area, there's a, there's a spot up on the upper left and on the lower right, that's called the Court of the Gentiles. You know, Sharon and I had a privilege last year uh, to go to Israel. And one of my favorite souvenirs, and I'll leave this out, I might even put it in the lobby, do not steal, no. Um, one of my favorite souvenirs is they've done a lot of architecture and tried to exactly figure... Architecture. Uh, uh, diggings. Uh, archaeology. Okay, yeah, that's it. When you look for old things. Yes, they did that right here. And, and we're pretty close. Not we're, because I didn't dig one thing. But people are pretty close to saying this is a little bit what this temple complex looked like, all right? So if you can think or, or try to understand a little bit that this city swelled to 10, 15, 20, 25 times what it normally had in attendance. There was all kinds of activity, especially here in this temple complex. And as a result, if I could just try to describe to you a little bit of the clutter and the noise and actually the corruption that happened. All the men and women would be coming in and all filled with this court of Gentiles were money changers. Sounds kind of evil, but actually they had a good purpose. And all these merchants... They were selling sacrificial animals. And I've never heard, you know, goats and rams and all these other types of animals quiet. So you've got herds literally outside here. Probably no room anywhere. You've got lots of tables of money changers because realistically the coin that was used at that time were Roman coins. And on Roman coins there were 
graven images. They were, well, like all of our coins are graven images, just so you know. I mean, it's the same type of thing. But there's Galilean coinage that didn't have any emperors on it or anything like that. And so really the idea was this. You had to come in, you had to pay your temple tax with a certain kind of, of coin. So you would bring your Roman coin, pass it over, and they would give you the right kind of coin so you could pay your tax. And then you could walk right down the road and, and honestly, if you were rather poor, you'd go for a dove. But if you weren't, you could go and grab one of these animals and pay um, the merchants to be able to use this as a sacrifice. We'll say, Rick, why don't you just bring your own or do this or do that? You've got to remember that, that some people spent weeks to get here. It'd just be hard to bring all this. So originally, the whole idea was, let's serve our people well. Let's provide for them something so they don't have to carry this or worry about this. So when they come to the Passover celebration, they can just enjoy it and understand how beautiful it is. Well, by this time, something good has turned into something literally called Anna's Bazaar, all right? Anna was a high priest that was deposed by the Romans about 15 years before Jesus came on the scene. But he was very corrupt, imagine this, and he put his sons in these Spots and literally they were bringing all kinds of funds in because what they were doing is charging high uh, transfer costs and charging astronomical prices for the sacrifices. So Jesus comes in, sees this zoo sees all of the chaos, understands all the corruption that's going on, offending the poor, doing some things that, well, originally were very, 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 very good. He comes into this courtyard and literally makes a scene. You know, honestly, though, even though Jesus was such an advocate for, for those who others looked down on, the women um, during that day, the, the culture didn't give you very high standing, and slaves, and, and the poor, and, and Jesus always gave them fresh and, and powerful looks and be able to encourage them. And although that bothered them out, I think what really bothered him was this, is that there was no place for the Gentiles to come in, the non-Jews, to worship. There wasn't a place anywhere for them to be able to connect with God. And if you look at this scene, what I want to share with you is this. This should shout. Because if you read the whole of the Scriptures... There was only two places that Jesus behaved like this. And we're going to describe it. Only two. Now, again, we don't have every recording of Jesus. We don't know what he did every single day. But what we do know, twice 
he behaved like this. In the beginning of his ministry, and actually at the very end of his ministry, did the same thing, cleanse the temple. Now again, there's some debate on whether Jesus really did this once or twice. I just feel he did it twice, and I'm going to land there. So I don't want to debate you. I'm just sharing that I think Jesus was making a statement. He was. The scriptures, for one thing, tell us that the Messiah was going to do this. If you look or check up on the board here, uh, in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Malachi writes this 400 years before the Messiah steps on the planet here. Look, he said, I'm sending my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord, the Messiah, you are looking or seeking, will suddenly come into the temple. The messenger of the covenant. Look at the, the, the descriptors there. All right. Whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver and burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. And then there's just a small scripture that says this, and the disciples remembered. And what they remembered came actually from Psalm 69.9. Again, these guys understood the word. And the scripture there says, and depending on your version, it's either zeal for your house has consumed me or passion for your house has consumed me. Now, you know, we we have to look at this. Because Jesus comes walking into this courtyard. You saw how big it was. It's not small. In comparison, there were probably hundreds of merchants and hundreds of money changers. They've been there a long time. They've been doing this a long time. One man comes in, and you can look at different translations of the whip. Some of us, you know, kind of get this image of um, Indiana Jones. Yeah, you know, he's got this, you know, and, and everybody moves. It's actually a kind of a wrong image. It probably was some cords that held animals, or maybe even some folks think it was vegetation, like mats that were lay, laying around. It wasn't, again, for him trying to hurt animals or scourge or whip people out of the way. It's just something, hey, I'm going to herd these guys out of here. I, I've got to shake some sticks. I've got I've to make sure that these animals leave. And if you read the text, what's a little bit encouraging is that he didn't open up or throw over the dove cages. He didn't. He basically told those folks, take your cages, because I'm not here to destroy your business, and actually I'm not here, you know, to make trouble, but, but you're blurring what the temple is all about. 
Do you get it? You're doing a good thing, but you've got to do it outside. You can't do it here. You're screwing it up for all the Gentiles for one thing, but it's become a circus. And do you realize that this is a house of prayer? This is a place where we're going to focus on atonement. This is a place where God's presence is. And we have Walmart out in the courtyard. Are you serious? So Jesus physically starts turning over tables. He starts physically one person. I don't know how many disciples were there with him. I don't know if the guys and everyone were just literally mesmerized. But folks, I go back to Malachi chapter 3. You see, remember, John's whole goal in his gospel was to reveal who Jesus, the Son of God, is. He does crazy things like make water into wine. Nobody does that. You know what else? When the house of God is not able to function like the house of God. He's going to do something about it. He's going to clear it out. Now again, most of us, we've seen too many movies or read too many books, you know, superheroes or this or that, but there was something about God's presence here. There was something as he moved through his face, his authority, his something because You know, folks, not one person messed with them. And those animals left. And he made a scene. God is passionate about his temple. He's passionate to make sure that, oh, it accomplishes what he wants it to accomplish. When God's people come together, there's reasons why God's people come together. And if you've got a bunch of animals and money changers, it's not going to work. You know, the next thing that hits me is that the resurrection trumps everything. It's, it's again, if you read this story, and again, some of you have read this story for so long, you've taught this, you know, you have these pictures. You might have even used flannel graph to be able to help, you know, these younger kids understand the whips and everything. If you don't know what flannel graph is, don't worry. Uh, we're a little more advanced now, okay? Not much, but, but there we are, all right? But what happens is this. As, as you look at this, this big thing, um, the authority, Authorities. If you look at, at the scriptures, but the Jewish leaders in verse 18 demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign. Now, we don't know at all what Jesus said while he was driving these out. I don't know if he just looked like the Son of God. And people just allowed him to do what he was supposed to do. But I have a sense he did say something. And I don't know what he said, but according to what these guys responded to, I just sort of think that that Jesus said something like this. 
by the power and the authority that my Father gives me, you guys got to leave. Because you're screwing up his house. Now, I don't know what Hebrew is for that, okay? But I can tell you this, is that for some reason these authorities came back. And they were like, who, who gave you this authority? Like, hey, we, we just lost a lot of money. Are you serious? And they go, why don't you give us a miraculous sign to show us your God? Okay, you have this authority. And so Jesus cooperates. He says, all right, I will. Verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Well, you see, later on, he sees his body as the temple. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that and, and how Jesus literally is the only one to be able to come and cleanse some of our temples. But he was talking about his body. And these guys were so clueless. They're thinking again, it's the temple, Herod's temple, that took 46 years to build. But you know who remembered it again were the disciples. After Jesus was resurrected. You see, don't you know that Jesus' answer reveals the greatest of all the signs? He didn't just simply do something little right here. He just gave it to him and says, hey, I'm just going to let you know. I'm going ra- to rise from It's going to blow everybody away. And I'm going to rise as king. And you are going to know my authority. I don't want to miss this fact that his disciples remembered. As as I read through scriptures and as certain words or certain phrases kind of jump out, this one did. And was actually kind of cool. It's not a a big point, but I, I don't want to move past it, to be quite honest. But his disciples remembered. His disciples remembered. Now, what did they remember? First of all, in the beginning, right there, they remembered that there was a scripture that talked about Jesus' zeal. Back in Psalm 69. But later on here, as I just read, they also remembered three years later when Jesus talked about the temple being destroyed and in three days being built up again. I got to tell you, I am so grateful that God loves us, that God, that we live in this post-resurrection time, that we have the Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us and prompts us and helps us remember the things that we have read. That's my only hope. Some have photographic memories. Some have brilliant minds and and something that goes in, you know, it's like a steel trap. Oh boy, it's not me. So every day I'm saying, Lord, you, you got to help me remember what I'm supposed to remember. You got to help me understand different things that I don't get. And you're so grateful for that Holy Spirit. And then lastly, lastly, before we hit to some very practical things, I notice this, that the crowds begin to trust. In verse 23, 
because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration. Um, by the way, we don't know of any miraculous signs that Jesus did, unless the sign was him clearing the court. But I have a sense that there was a whole lot more that Jesus did. That's all. I don't know what he did. I know how he did it. But again, according to John, he didn't record it. But the whole idea of a sign is be able to point and be able to give Jesus the authority. This is the Son of God. He's visited us. And look what it says. Many began to trust in him. That is a great translation. That is a great translation. Some of yours will say believe and so on. But, but realistically, what is happening here? John, over and over and over again, talks about how one comes to faith. But what's so exciting about this, in my opinion, is that it reveals to us the journey that all of us are on. Hey, every one of us need to come to a place when we understand the gospel, recognize that our sinfulness is, well, too much, no matter what it is, to connect us with God. That's why Jesus died. That's why he spilled his blood once and for all. That's why we have the opportunity to become sons and daughters of God. All right? And so you do come to a place like that. But you know, one of the things about this generation is that very few of the millennials that I've met and come to faith can point to a specific moment in their life. It's so weird, okay, to me, because I'm cut and dry. When did you come to faith, or when didn't you? When did you trust Jesus? I go, well, Rick, you know, it, you know, for the last three months, I've been, well, was there some time during the three, all I know is that I believe in Jesus right now. He died for me. And you see the eyes dancing, you go, oh, you are saved. You are redeemed. This is so cool. Like, can't you, like, give me a date? Give me an hour. Come, come on, I'm an old guy. Do it. You'll hear that more and more in our baptismal tanks. Okay? They'll share people who have been redeemed, but they might not know exactly when. They might not know. And I don't know if that's the critical thing. I know they need to come to faith. But what happens right here is kind of cool, is that many people begin to trust in him. And then that phrase, and it seems a little harsh, but I'd, I'd like to maybe explain this a little more. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew their human nature. Really, I think what Jesus is saying here is he knew that they were not mature yet. He, he probably wasn't offering them some leadership positions. He probably wasn't even banking on them to, to be followers in two weeks. I don't know. If everything was just experiential for them, he probably knew it's going to take some time. He did. So what did we learn about Jesus in this text? What's supposed to be shouting out to us? Well, I think the first thing I saw, more than anything, is that Jesus was obedient to the Scriptures. He fully embraced the Passover festival. He listened and actually fulfilled the prophecy. Listened to his dad. And it's really hard 
not to see that he was passionate about God's house, the temple. Something that was normally part of his life. He purged it of some very good things, but not good where they were. So what we learn? What was modeled for us? And I think there's lots of lessons here, but the one I want to really focus on is that as we look in the New Testament and understand the meaning of the temple, it's changed. Christ abolished the need for the sacrificial system. He became our high priest. He became our atonement, our sacrifice. And the word temple has a completely different meaning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul writes this, and it's in the context of sexual sin. And he says this, Don't you realize that all of you together are the... Excuse me, the next one's in the context of sexual sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes this, Don't you realize that all of you together, it's you plural, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple for God's temple is holy and you as a church, as a corporation of believers, are that temple. And then God calls specifically your bodies a temple. And this is in the context of sexual sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? That's where God dwells now. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. How cool is that? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, and you must honor God with your body. Now, here's the deal. There are times that our church, or our corporate sense of believers, um, do really good things. But, you know, God desires the best. And I'm not here actually to point out one or two or three things that we better change right now. But I know this, is that God is so faithful. And God desires deeply, and it might be even a question that you begin to ask. What is it that God's refining that only He can chase out in our church that needs to be chased out? Now, it's real easy sometimes to look at things that need to change in our church. Some of you are really faithful in telling me that. Okay? I get it. But God also calls us, our bodies, a temple. And my guess is, even today, there are some things I think God desires to chase out, to purge, to clean. Only He can do it. Only he can do that. And so I'm asking you, even at this moment, maybe that's one of the questions you ask. God, you are an amazing God. God, I love you with all of my heart. God, I want to trust you. 
But is there something in my life that you need to chase out? Because it's not good for my life. Might even be something good. But that's a question between you and God. I also think in a very practical way that our church is worthy of our passion. The verse that hit me again is that passion for a house of God consumed Jesus. Now, if Jesus is chipping away things so that I look a little bit more like Jesus as I listen to him, because I can't really try to chip away things. I cannot try in my own power to look like Jesus or reflect Jesus well. That's something that God's doing in my life as I walk with him. But if that's happening and Jesus had this unbelievable zeal for the house of God, I wonder if some of us need to grow in that area and maybe ask God. Now again, maybe it's not this house. Maybe it's someone else's house down the road. But I got to tell you is that once you find out whose house is yours, I think you need to grow in that compassion, in that passion. You know, the Holy Spirit is active in all those who walk with, the God, with God and, and brings remembrance and, and, and encourages us. But the thing I want to end with is this. Faith is a journey. It's a path toward maturity. And as we continually listen, obey our God, our faith grows. Our passion grows. He chips away things that ought to be chipped away. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for John, for his courage to share with us what is important. Lord, there are so many things in this text, and there are so many things that, that uh, hit us. And I pray even now, God, that you would just use the time together to refine us. To do in each one of us something that will bring you great glory. To do in our church something that would bring you great glory. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.